Thank you so much for joining us here at Word Baptist Church. I'm Jamar Andrews. I'm the lead pastor, and I get the great privilege of shepherding here. I'm excited that you're joining us today for this sermon. You're about to receive text-driven preaching. My prayer is that God speaks to you through this time as you listen to this message. So enjoy, and God bless. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5 is where we will spend our time together this morning as we continue our series entitled Unveiled, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We have been working our way through the book, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and uh, now we find ourselves in chapter five uh, of this beautiful book. Uh, If you remember, when we started this series uh, in chapter one, we were introduced to Uh, the structure and flow of the book, that the book itself has three major sections. Uh, Chapter 1 lets us know this in verse 19, but we see that John was given the task uh, to record or to write the things that he had seen, the things that are and the things that would come. And so now that we are in chapter 5, we are in that third section, the the movement, the things uh, which are to come. And so If you were with us last week, we had an opportunity to be brought into the throne room of God. And what we're going to see today is that the scene shifts uh, still in the throne room, but the scene shifts now uh, to focus on a scroll or a book and one who is worthy. And so the title of today's message is Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. Now, in this passage, that we have before us this morning, John is going to give us some beautiful information specifically about the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we've been going through Revelation, sometimes uh, people can mistake this particular book for John's revelation, but it's actually the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's very specific in who it is unveiling or revealing to us. And so today in very vivid language, we're going to see Uh, the way in which the Lord uh, has now um, worked and moved in the way in which we should view him in redemptive history. You know, I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, growing up, I was deathly afraid of dogs. Anybody in here afraid of dogs? Let me just see by show of hands. I know some of you like, no, I love, listen, I don't trust dogs one second, small or large. And uh, still to this day, You know, I have people that invite me over and they they say, you know, he won't bite. No, he won't bite you. Okay, (laughs) won't bite you. And so when I think about this idea of of animals and things that we are afraid of, I'm just going to be straight up honest with you. I've never been afraid of a lamb. Anybody in here, just when you think of this ferocious, you know, mean, passionate, victorious animal, does a lamb just come up into your mind? But can I tell you what we're going to find out from our text is that the most victorious, the most powerful to ever have done it is the lamb. And for the rest of this book, as we look, we're going to see the lamb as the motif in which God describes himself to us. And that's very important when it comes to our relationship with him. You see, before us, We have this beautiful expression of worship, of glory, of holiness, of the worth of Jesus Christ. But if we're not careful, we cannot allow these things in verse 5 to really shape our Christianity or the way in which we live. 
you know, in the days in which we live, we, we, we find ourselves in some doom and gloom type days. If you listen to most people, they'll tell you, oh, the world's going to end in so many years. Uh, man, if we don't change, it's doom and gloom all the time. And if we were honest in here, those of us who have children or grandchildren, you, you, you probably have thought a time or two of what, what type of world are my children going to live in? What type of world are my grandchildren going to live in? What are, what are they going to be experiencing uh, as history moves forward? Well, I'm so thankful that God has given us his word to be able to shape the way in which we think, to be able to shape the way in which we look to him, the one who was in control before the world ever was made, the one who was in control while the world was being made, and the one who was going to always and forever be in control. He is calling us to look to him in this time. And so John writing to believers, Christians who are going through a very difficult time and asking a lot of questions about their present circumstance and their future uh, lifestyles, we find that, that the Lord speaks very clearly to that. We find that he's going to teach us some very important things. Our passage this morning is going to break down in three movements about the Lord. Let me just give those to you, and then we're going to take flight this morning. The first thing is we're going to see that we must worship Jesus because he is qualified. Now, last week I talked about worshiping the Lord. In specific, I was talking about God the Father. And this week, I'm specifically talking about God the Son. And I can remember that there's some confusion in the ranks about whether or not one should worship, actually worship Jesus. Well, here's what I know all of heaven does, so so should you, and so should I. And so the first thing we're going to see is that we should worship Jesus because he is qualified. He is qualified to, to, to receive our worship. Secondly, we're going to see that we should worship Jesus because he is victorious. He's no loser. We love winners, and he is the greatest winner of all. And then lastly, we're going to see that he deserves our worship because, granted, all the things that he's done, he's deserving of everything that we bring in terms of worship. Now, our passage picks up in the throne room, having seen this beautiful vision of the throne room, a, thr a throne steady, stable in heaven. You remember that there were uh, elders around at 24, there were creatures for, creatures around it. There was a, a, a rainbow, full circle, emerald, bringing us that emerald, bringing us into the understanding of the, the stones out of the tribes. The one that was the priesthood is a beautiful picture there. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. We see this beautiful crescendo of worship where crowns are being thrown and thunder and lightning coming out from the throne room, a, a glassy sea in front, all these beautiful things in the throne room. And then the scene shifts. The scene shifts in our passage. We're going to look at our first section, verses 1 through 5, and here's the shift. You ready for it? It says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep 
greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. The first thing we're going to see is that we, we worship Jesus because he's qualified. You see, the scene moves now to a book. Now, don't, don't think book in the terms of the way in which we have it, where we have the binding and pages and glue. Uh, think scroll here. And so what we find is, is the scene moves to a right-handed, a scroll in the right hand of him, the father here on the throne, this beautiful picture, the right hand being the hand of authority, the hand of might and power. And there's a scroll that's in that hand. Now, this scroll, most people automatically are asking, what in the world is this scroll all about? It says, I, I saw it in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written, notice this, inside and on the back. So meaning that this particular scroll that had writing on the inside and on the outside, and then it was rolled up and it had seven seals holding it together. Now, when we come to this this image, this, this imagery, it's important to submit a couple things to you because I know just like me, y'all are all wondering, you know, what's the big deal about the scroll? We go from all this praise and worship on the throne and all these beautiful things and then immediately the scene shifts to this scroll. So this must be a very important piece. And you are right, this is a very important piece. Now, there are a few things that we have to make sure we unpack to be able to understand the imagery that John is giving us here. So, so when we look at this, we understand that scrolls in this day, they would have been used for two main purposes. Two main purposes. One, to execute or to write out a will or to be used as a title deed. Most of the time, they would be used synonymously or together whenever there was one who owned a property and they wanted to make sure that that will, that inheritance was laid down to the next one coming. And so the information about how all of that was to happen will be laid out inside of the, the will. And if there was a problem, a problem, let's just say the one who owned the land, they could not hold it or they could not pay it or there would be debts that would be levied against them, then the, the, that scroll, that document, that deed then would be taken and on the back of it, all the debts that they owed would be written on it and then it would be sealed up with seven seals and they would be given seven years to be able to satisfy the seven things or the things that were the debts on the back so that way they could then experience what was initially written on the front side. And so I want you to just take for a minute that understanding. And we recognize very clearly that this is a very important document. This document carries with it some very important information. And we see that the picture here is, is that it's in the position of authority and the father is holding it. Verse 2 tells us some other important information. Verse 2 says, and I saw a strong angel. What type of angel? A strong angel. That word strong could also be switched out with the word mighty. 
Now, I know sometimes in our day, we don't, we don't think of angels as being real strong. Y'all know what I'm saying to you? Most of the time, we think of angels as being kind of weak and frail and, you know, have beautiful hair and all that kind of stuff, right? But can I tell you, the majority of the time, whenever you see people running into angels, you know, they are not thinking, man, you got beautiful hair, all right? Most of the time, they are saying, don't kill me, all right? I'm afraid. Like when we see this in scripture, you see angels that deliver messages. You see angels that personally do God's bidding and service. But then you also see these mighty, strong angels like they have swords in hand and they're ready to lockstep, go to war. And some of them do actually do that. When you read the Old Testament, you actually see them actually fight for God's people. And so when we see this mighty angel, I just thought just to just take a little quick little pastoral encouragement here that I think many times in our expression when it comes to our relationship with God, we think about Satan and we think about demons and we get real scared and we forget to, to remember that God, number one, is the most powerful being. He's the, the top tier, strongest. But then he has these other beings that serve him. And can I tell you, them some bad creatures. And the crazy thing about it is that he actually allows them to move and work and to do his bidding, to guard us, to protect us, to take care of us. And so I'm going to just tell you the way I think about it all the time. Whenever I'm going into places where it's not a very, you know, it's a lot of darkness or a lot of wickedness, a lot of unsaid, I'm like, you know what, Lord, I'm believing that the ones that are on my side are stronger and more numerous than the ones that are on their side. And let's just see what happens. But many times we don't think that way. We feel outnumbered. But can I tell you, God has some mighty warriors. And he says very clearly, there was a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Let me just tell you, if you think heaven is going to be a real quiet place like a library, you got another thing coming. You know, I think sometimes that's what we think when we think about heaven. Don't nobody want to go there because you think it's going to be boring. I'm just keeping it real. There ain't no football there. Ain't nobody yelling at each other there. Ain't nobody having a good time there. And so a lot of us don't want to leave here to go there because we have a misunderstanding about what goes on. But this is the first of many occasions where we're going to hear the fact that they're yelling in heaven. Hey, who is worthy? Right. Yelling, having a good time. But I want you to notice what he asks. Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Now, this is a great question. There's a problem in heaven. And notice this, this search, this search begins. There's a, there's a problem in heaven. Who is worried to open the book? Did you see in verse three, a search begins and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. That's a problem. That's the problem. But nobody in heaven, nobody on earth and nobody that was on earth. And then, you know, now they underneath in, in, in the abyss. There's nobody, nobody that can do this. There's a search that went on and nobody was able to open it. It's a problem. Now, when we look at this, this is a fascinating assessment. That whenever God was looking at one to be able to come and get this title deed. This title deed, I'm submitting it to you that this is the title deed to the events of God's will in human history of what's going to be happening on planet Earth. Whenever somebody they were looking for somebody that could open it up and begin to reveal it, th this statement that there was nobody should shock you. You mean to tell me Moses couldn't do it? You mean to tell me Elijah couldn't do it? 
You mean to tell me Enoch couldn't do it? You mean to tell me all the Old Testament saints, the guys and, and the sisters that we revere greatly, they couldn't do it? You mean to tell me they looked over all the world. They looked over all the world. People that were living, people that had died, people that were in heaven, and nobody could do it. You mean all these great people that we revere, all these great other religious leaders, you mean to tell me none of them could do it? None of these prophets, none of these holy men, none of these people? No, not a single one of them could do it. We look and we see that this causes a problem with John. Did you catch our man John? Did y'all catch John? Did y'all notice what John did? In verse 4, catch this. Then I began to weep greatly. Our English Bible is trying to help us to know what happened to John, how whenever he understood that this book, that there was nobody that was going to be able to open it, to be able to, to unveil the human history, that God had laid out what he was going to be doing in real time. Our English Bible is trying to tell us, it said he's, he, he wept greatly. You know, that there's, in our English, it's very limited, right? You know, like if somebody says he wept, you know, there's a way in which you can weep right where it's like a silent tear and it just rolled down one tear. That makes sense. But then there's another way in which you can weep where it's that ugly cry. Y'all know what I'm trying to talk about? Y'all don't ugly cry in here. Y'all know what I'm saying, okay? The kind that it makes your you know, nose is running and you sniffling and going on, okay? So the word used here for cry is ugly cry. John was ugly crying in heaven. And the crazy thing about this type of crying is that he cried and he kept on crying. So this ain't like he went, ooh, like, no. This is he cried and he continued to cry. This fascinates me because when I think about this movement in the throne room of John being, you know, crying there, I wonder if he's the very first person to ever cry in heaven because the elders don't seem real sensitive. You know what I'm trying to tell you? He must have been the first one because they don't seem real sensitive to his crying. Y'all ready for this? Listen to what they say. That's, I love this part. He says that he was crying, verse 4. Because nobody could open the book. But then look in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Quit crying. Dry that up. He said, stop it. It doesn't say he went over and patted him on the back and said, oh, poor baby. No. He said, stop crying. The reason why is because the answer was right there. He says, behold, the lamb the lion, behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He overcame so as to open the book and the seven seals. Now, before we unpack this piece right here, can I just make one application? You know, I love that God in his word, he reveals to us that John was crying, that he was upset. And I find that so many times when we're upset about things, our perspective shifts and we begin to look at what we don't have or what's not going on. But the problem is, is that God was working it out. He was there. He was working and he was moving. And so can I just tell you, for some of you in here, there are things going on in your life. And I jot down because I didn't want to miss it. I, you are searching and you want to know what to do or what's supposed to happen or what's supposed to happen in my life this way. Or how is this supposed to go? And can I tell you, God is in your midst and he is working it out to perfection. Many times we miss it. We, we, we miss it. 
because our eyes are full of tears and we don't see the line from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And we miss it. You see, there are three descriptors that he gives to us. The first two are found in verse five, and we're going to see the next one in verse six. These are very important to understand why Jesus is qualified. So let me just hit it. Jesus is qualified first and foremost to be able to take the scroll, to be able to take the book, because number one, he is the lion from the tribe of, of Judah. This idea of being the lion from the tribe of Judah means, means clearly that he is victorious, that he has dignity, that he has courage, that he is sovereign. When you think lion, you always think majestic. Who is the king of the jungle? The lion. You see, whenever he pulls this out of us, he recognizes that Judah, Judah is a tribe that, that we, when we get praise, that, that's where that name means that's the one he, he is receiving praise, the one that's worthy of praise. He is the one that has the scepter in Genesis 49. His dad, Judah's dad, told him that, listen, the scepter's not going to pass from it. So he's the one, he's the king, the one who is dignified, the one who is sovereign. And so he's saying, listen, no need to cry because the one who is sovereign has overcome. He is the one who has done what needs to be done. He has the credentials to be able to do it. But then not only does he say that, but then he talks about this idea of the root, the root of David. Now, this is important because Jesus is a descendant of David. But here's the crazy thing. He also created David. And, and when Jesus was in his earthly ministry, he confounded the Pharisees all the time with this understanding about the fact that, that David was the king. But he said, the Lord said to my Lord that he was created, that David was created, that his lineage was created. And so what he's highlighting here is not just the fact that he is king, that he is majestic, that he is royal, that he is sovereign. But he is also highlighting the fact that he is divine, that he is the root of David. He is the very one who created it. Can I just ask you a quick question? What's the most important part of a tree? The roots. The roots. The roots are the most important part of a tree. It's what brings up the, the, the nutrients that it needs to be able to live. It's what holds it down stable whenever the wind is blowing. It's, it's what brings life to the tree. It's the most important part. And what's so crazy about this now, because this is a beautiful thing here that he's illustrating, is that the roots, where, where do they hang out? Under the ground. So the most important part of the tree is hidden under the ground, underneath the dirt where you don't see it, right? Can I just ask you another quick question? When God fashioned a man, what did he fashion him out of? Dirt, right? So whenever Jesus Christ, when he comes down, he comes down from heaven to earth. The divine takes on flesh. And can I tell you, the most important part, the Bible says that he allowed that flesh to come in and to, to conceal all the glory, all the majesty, all those things. Doesn't mean he stopped being God, but he's saying he's the root of David, that the most important part of him, that divine part that he took on flesh and he allowed that to cover up the essence, the nature, those things, all of what he is and who he is, he has overcome. Y'all don't seem too excited just yet. I'm going to tell you, if we're in a certain place, we shouting and running, but we're going to go here for, just hang with me for a minute. I'm going to give you a reason here in a second. See, it's highlighting his, the fact that he's eternal. It's highlighting the fact that this relationship that we need, we need one to, to be king. We need one to have the ability. We need one to be willing. All, all these things highlight this. The, the reason why I said it, y'all be shouting is because 
ultimately what's happening here is, is we are getting brought into the realization of how man is redeemed and how God is going to work in human history. You see, we have to have a kinsman redeemer. We have to have one who is like us, right? Kin to us, but one who is willing to redeem us and one who is able to redeem us. So let me, let me just break it down this way. When we talk about the kinsman redeemer, you see in Jesus Christ's incarnation, what he does is, is he identifies with humanity. He becomes our kinfolk. He becomes a part of the family. In his desire, you know, sometimes family can want to do something, but they can't help you, right? You can have a bill that's doing that. Like, I sure wish I could help you. But if you saw my bank account, you'd understand why I can't. That makes sense? So just having the desire to do it doesn't necessarily mean that you can do it. But the beautiful thing in Christ is we have all three. He is our kinsman redeemer, meaning he is kin to us. He has the desire to do it, and he also has the means to do it. L let me break it down this way. That in Christ, his incarnation brings him into now the human line. The, the one where we were messed up because of the garden, because of what Adam and Eve did, their sin. So when he comes in, he takes on flesh now. Now he is the perfect Adam, the perfect one. He's our kinsman. Then he has the desire. What the Bible says very clearly is that, that from the foundation of the world, he's the lamb that was saying that he already knew, he decided, he determined that that was the way in which he was going to come. He was going to take on flesh and he's going to dwell among us. That he didn't wait for us to get it right. He didn't wait for us to not sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ came and he died for us. That he had the desire to do it. But then he has the ability now. He has the ability because of his lifestyle, the fact that he lived the perfect life. He did not sin one time, that he was perfect in all ways, that he was tempted and tried just like we are. But can I tell you, he did it without sinning. I hear somebody in the back like, illustrate that thing for me, preacher. I just ain't seeing it. Anybody had your quiet time in the book of Ruth? Y'all remember Sister Ruth? Y'all remember Sister Ruth? Most of y'all remember Brother Boaz, right? Boaz was a bad man. You hear what I'm telling you? You remember? Ruth, husband dies. She married into, married to a Jew. Mother-in-law was struggling with it. They come back into the, into the promised land. Ruth is now, she's, a, she, she's not married any longer. She's this foreigner coming in. And so they've got to eat. And, you know, Boaz had a feel. You know, Boaz was a bad man, that big ball of shot collar, I like to say. That's contemporary version. And so, you know, Ruth, she finds out about Boaz and she starts to go gleaning, you know, getting the, 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 the harvest off the sides, off the edges, they would leave them. You know, Boaz rolled out one day to see his field and he saw Ruth. He said, oh, who is that over there? Y'all know what I'm talking about, brothers. You remember when you first saw your wife, you said, who is that over there? He finds out the details, the information. And as you continue to read through Ruth, what you find out is this story about the fact that he wanted to be the kinsman redeemer, but there was another one that was closer to kin than he was. And he was struggling because he thought, man, I want, it, I want the sister. I got to get her. You know, we got to get together. But the closer kin, he didn't want it. And so they had to go and they had to go to the, 
the gate where business is tended to and there had to be this transaction where there was this transaction to promise to be able to take care of her and he had to take off the shoe and hand the shoe and that was all all these things that were going on and he had to be able to do it so not only did he have to be kin but he had to have the desire but he also had to have the ability and you see what happened in that garden what we all failed to realize is that we live under this understanding that there was a transaction that happened in that garden where God had called Adam and Eve to be in a position of dominion on this earth. And so whenever Satan comes in and they fall for that, it affects everything. It affects them and affects this very world and planet that we live on. And so what Jesus Christ does is the kinsman redeemer, he comes down, he comes down to this earth and he sees this Gentile, this Gentile group of individuals. Can y'all hear me in here? And he says, you know what? I want to redeem them. And so he is willing, number one, as a kinsman. Number two, he has the desire. And number three, he has the ability. And so we see that he is the one that is worthy to be able to open this thing up. We see he's qualified. He's qualified. But not only that, though, he's victorious. He's victorious. I want you to look in our passage, verses 6 through 10, says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, we remember them, and the elders, you remember them, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, say, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth. The second movement we're going to see is not only just his qualification. We're going to see that he is victorious. We're going to see that he is victorious. Now, we have some information that's brought back to us that we'll have to tap back into chapter four, four. And that's OK. But what I want you to see in verse six, it says this. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders and the lambs. You remember the throne was set up, four living creatures next, then the elders are next. And so this, this lamb that's slain is right in the center. This victorious lamb, he's right in the center of it. And notice what it says about him. I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing. You see, this is a beautiful picture of heaven. This picture of heaven it's highlighting for us that Jesus is in a central position. What does it say he's doing? Not a trick question. I'll make sure y'all with me. Y'all wasn't ready for that. Let me back up and we're going to come back at it again. So what does it say he's doing? Now we're ready. He's standing. And this is no trite matter here. 
when it says that he's standing, the word, the position of this word, it says that he was standing, he is standing, and he will always be standing, meaning that he is stable. He's not going anywhere. That this lamb, this lamb who was slain is going to forever and always be the central figure of heaven. That, that is exactly what it is. He is the central figure, past, present, and future. It says that this lamb, he's slain. This is the picture of the redeemer. So not just the king, not just God in, in, in divine, but also the redeemer. He's the one that brings us back. And catch what it says about him. A lamb standing as if slain. Now, this is a beautiful thing. He's standing there, but, but he has his wounds on him. He has the marks of death on him. But he's standing alive. You see, this redeemer is highlighting, and it should take our minds back. You know, lambs are very important, especially when you pull up the Old Testament. Let me just lay out a few for you, and then we're going to illustrate this thing. Lambs are very important. You remember in Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. Everybody remember Abraham and Isaac? They remember? He loved that brother. Abraham loved Isaac. And God said, I need you to go and go, go sacrifice him for me. And Abraham said, do what? Yeah, I need you to go and sacrifice. And you remember they get everything together and they make the journey and they get up there. And, you know, Isaac was a smart brother. You know, he had seen Pop sacrifice many in his day. And he's looking around. He said, look, Pop, I see the stuff to, you know, get everything together. But where, where, where the sacrifice at? You talk about an awkward conversation. Son, he didn't say you to sacrifice. You know what he said? God will provide himself a lamb. He's going to provide. That's exactly what he does. You remember, let's just fast forward history just a little bit. You remember in Exodus, children of Israel down in Egypt, God's trying to let them know who the true God is. And it gets to that last one. He's getting ready to do that last plague. You remember what he told them to do? Lamb had to lose his life, and he put the, put the blood on the side of the door, posting it up, put that thing down, put the blood on the side. you remember that lamb? That day was very important to have a lamb that you could, perfect lamb that you could cut open. That day. What about Isaiah? Let's just move it forward. The suffering servant, the lamb who's going to be slain. Lambs are very important. So how in the world do you know, Jamar, that this lamb right here is Jesus. Thank, thank y'all for asking. John chapter 1, verse 29. John 1, 29. If you take a notes, I want you to look at it with me. Says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, what did he say? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, lamb's very important. Now, this lamb, when you, when you look at him, he kind of look a little funny, doesn't he? Looks a little funny, and most of the time we pick this up and we struggle with this, but this is very clear here in verse 6. Catch it now. And the elders, verse 6, and the elders and the, and the lamb standing as if slain, having how many horns? Seven. How many eyes? Which are the seven spirits of God. Seven, seven, seven. Now, remember, we talked about numbers last week. We're going to keep on talking about it as we move. This has the idea of perfection completeness and so whenever it calls out and it says about this lamb about Jesus that he has seven horns this has to do with his power that he is all powerful this lamb is all powerful when it says he has seven eyes it's symbolic language to say 
that he is all knowing. He is all wise. This idea of the seven spirits, this means that he is everywhere, that he is, he is omnipresent. So we're talking about the omnis here. This is talking about who he is. And then once we get this breakdown, they sent out into all the earth. And in verse seven, it says this, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This is a victorious moment and it's going to create worship. But can I tell you, because Jesus Christ is victorious, we're going to see how this worship flows. And I want you to catch it now. You're going to see how worship flows once he takes the book. When he takes the book and he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they fell down before the, before where? Before the lamb. Each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So what happens here in heaven is they fall down before who? The lamb. So is Jesus the lamb? You better believe it. Is he receiving worship? You better believe it. He's receiving worship in heaven. But this is not new. Even when he was on earth, he received worship. Many times when you read the Bible, as you read the gospels, you'll see that he receives worship. The only reason why I say that to you is because there are going to be some people that are going to come knock on your door and they're going to try to tell you Jesus is not God and Jesus does not receive worship. And will y'all do me a favor? Will y'all take them to this passage and say, well, I was reading the other day. And the same things they did to the one who was on the throne, they also did to the lamb. Can you explain that to me? You see, he's victorious. He is victorious. When they took the book, it says they worshiped. But what's this deal about the harps and the bowls? Let's, let's just hit this for a second. Now, the harp is an instrument of praise. So this is the picture here that there's a, there, there is praise and prayer and they always go together. Praise and prayer. Notice this. Not only did they have, they had harps in one hand, but then they had golden bowls. And inside those golden bowls, it was the prayers of the saints. Now, I, I love this because it tells us that God, he keeps up with the prayers of the saints. Can, let me just let me put it in contemporary terms real quick. And then 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 we'll unpack this thing. You know, sometimes you can pray to God and you don't get your answer immediately, right? You, you feel like, you know, God, I've been talking to you about this thing and I've been talking to you about this thing and you don't get your answer. I'm going to use an example. You know, sometimes you might text somebody and it says deliver down there so you know they got it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Sometimes I even have a read receipt on there so it lets you know that they even read the thing. But they have not responded anybody bad about responding can i see them hands in here okay i appreciate that and you know how we act you know you know how we act whenever we see that the message been sent and they done read it and we ain't heard it how, how do we act we get frustrated copy paste again y'all know how we act can i just be straight up i'm trying to keep it real okay and that's exactly what we do and can I tell you, there are many times in heaven you have prayed, you have prayed, you've asked, we're going to see, this is not the first time we're going to see this. It's the first time we've seen it. It's not the last time we're going to see this in the book. But can I just tell you, it tells us that God, he records, he knows the prayer of the saints and praise and prayer go together. 
And can you imagine being a persecuted group of Christians and hearing the fact that God, he knows he has the prayers right there, that, that the, the, they're holding it. They're around his throne, that God is keeping up with what you've been asking him. He's been keeping up with what you've been going through. He's keeping up with what's happening. It's a beautiful picture here that he knows that whenever you pray to him, it's not going up to some place in silence. It's not just getting fouled away, but it's going to the very throne room of God and he is keeping up with it. We also see not only that they have harps, remember the harp, the idea of praise, praise and worship go together. And we're going to see how they worship. Look with me in verse nine. It says, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, this is a beautiful song. Notice what kind of song is it? It's a new song. Now, in our English, it's very limited, right? If I tell you, listen, I've got a new pair of shoes, okay? I could mean that I have another pair like the ones I had, my favorite ones, but I got another pair like those, or I got a completely new type of pair of shoes. That makes sense? So when we say new, we could be saying new of the same kind or new of a different kind. You want to know what kind of song this is? This is a new song of a different kind, meaning that this song, we hadn't heard this song in heaven before. We ain't never heard this kind of song. This is a new song of a different type. And this is a missionary song. This is a gospel song. This is a song in which they are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And in this song, it is highlighting the fact that Jesus Christ has broken down the stronghold that kept humanity separated from God, that made heaven not a possibility for you and for me, that he is the one who has done it. Let, let, let me illustrate it this way. Y'all looking like a brother need to illustrate two ways. Anybody in here grow up with braces? You might say, grow up. I got them now. You understand what I'm trying to tell you? Fantastic. This is a beautiful picture here. You know, the reason why you get braces tend to be you need to fix some things inside the grill area, right? There's either a space where, you know, the space is too big or some has been turned that shouldn't be turned, right? And so what happens is, is you go in there and you let them put all this gear inside of you to be able to move things close together that are far apart or to straighten up things that are crooked. And whenever we see this work, this new song that it says, whenever he breaks the seal, the way in which he does it with his blood, can I tell you, Jesus Christ are the best braces you ever going to find because he pulls together two things that were, were not going to be able to go together. That's sinful humanity and the holy God. And he, he straightens out things that were crooked, right? The way in which we lived our life, the thoughts that we had, the intentions of our heart, he straightens those things out. And so this is a song that is highlighting this about the Lord. And then he says, he says that, that it's a, vic, a victory song, a victory song. And every time I read this, it makes me think about my junior high days playing junior high basketball. You know, I'll never forget it. 1999, you hear me? Douglas MacArthur Jr. High, win the conference championship. And can I tell you what a game it was? The problem with the game was a brother didn't get one second on the floor. You hear what I'm telling you? <laughs> no clock. You hear me? Zero. 
But listen, we won the game. Did y'all hear what I said? What did I say? We won the game. I didn't foul nobody. I didn't guard them, but didn't take a shot. You hear me? But the warm-up, you should have been there for the warm-up. But that's how for a whole nother day. But every time I read this, I think about this idea of junior high, ninth grade, the champions, with conference champs, and a brother didn't play one second. But I tell you, you walk in that gym, you walk in that gym tomorrow, and you look up on that board, guess who name on that board? <laughs> you better know it. Just with, with everybody else. With everybody else, my name is on that board. And whenever I think about this, when I think about what Christ did, can I just tell you, you and I, we were not there. We were not on that cross. But can I tell you, whenever you are on his team, I'm just, somebody here need to be encouraged. Whenever you are on his team, your name gets to be on the board. Even though you didn't make any shot, you didn't do anything, you didn't even foul anybody. But when you're on his team, your name, your name, you get to be a part of his family. And can I tell you, you want to know about his team? Y'all looking like y'all want to know about his team. Can I tell you about his team? His team has people from every, every single tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Can, can I just tell you, it's going to be a beautiful thing here that when we get to heaven, there's no, there's no segregation, right? There's no black folk section. There's no white folk section. There's no African section. There's no European section. Listen, we all together, every class of people. That's what the lamb did. He purchased them back. He laid his life down. He redeemed them to be his own. And so what happens now is when we look at this, this should cause us, what we see here should cause us to live differently right now. It should cause us to understand that there is only one individual that can bring unity among people, and that is the lamb. Okay, not no political party going to be able to do that. Even though I understand we got to vote, we got to be active in all these other things. Not no political party is going to be able to do that. Not no amount of money is going to be able to do that. There's only one individual that can bring us together, and it is the lamb. Don't you forget it. The only the reason why. The reason why he's the only one that can bring us together is because he's the only one that died for us all to be able to be together. He's the only one that sacrificed his life for us to be together. Matter of fact, he's the only one that is victorious. Everybody else, losers. Jesus Christ, the only one victorious. You see the difference between our Lord and every other religious figure, every other political figure, every other anybody else in history is that whenever they were slain, guess what happened to them? They stayed that way. But him, he was standing alive. He was standing alive, victorious. And so thus he can now bring us together by the sacrifice that he has made. Now, can I just tell you? That's not the end of the story, though. That's not the end of the story, because about this team. He tells us that he gives us purpose and identity. Did you catch it? Look with me. In verse 10, you have made them who? These folks that he purchased from every tribe, nation, tongue, peoples. You made them, you made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. Did y'all catch that? So right then and there, we have identity and position. And so ultimately, the, the priests were responsible for worship. That's what their job was. And I'm just coming to tell you that that is still our job today. That in this world, our job is to be a worshiper, period. You know, in our culture, sometimes we, we can miss it. 
And we can think, you know what, God, you want to make me a missionary. You want to make me a preacher. You want to make me a teacher to help people. You want me to do all these things. But can I just tell you, when Jesus Christ was on this earth walking in John chapter four, he told us the people that God's looking for. He's not looking for the next great preacher. He's not looking for the next great missionary. He's not looking for the next great humanitarian. He says that he is looking for worshipers. That is what he is looking for. And so whenever he calls us a kingdom of priests, he is calling us to be a people of worshipers that help people know how to worship God properly, how to come into a relationship with him properly, how to experience and understand the victory that Jesus Christ has obtained on the cross of Calvary. That's what he's calling us to see. Y- y'all think I'm, I'm fired up? I'm not fired up just yet. Look with me in Matthew 28. You see, this is a beautiful thing. It's a gospel song. He was slain. This is a song that is emphasizing the cross. And I know that in a lot of churches around the world, people don't like to talk about the blood. They don't like to talk about the cross. They don't like to talk about these things. But guess what? They talk about it in heaven. So if it's good enough for heaven, it's good enough for right in here. That's what Jesus said. Notice what he says. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority. Can I ask you a quick question? How much authority does he have? All authority. I'm going to ask a follow-up. Do you live like it? You just answer that on your own. All authority has been given to me. Where? In heaven and on earth. Then he gives a command to you, his kingdom of priests. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I just want that to stay just for a second. This is not like wishful thinking. Like this is not our Lord. When we see what he has done to purchase us, he has laid his life down. What he is telling us is a command. It is a command that we go and we make disciples. We make them, we mark them, And we mature them. If you want to just put in a nice little contemporary way of what you should be doing with your life, making disciples, marking disciples, and maturing disciples. Make them, mark them, and mature them. The mark of baptism, here goes the maturity part, verse 20. Says this, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, how long am I with you? Always, even to the end of the age. And what he's saying to you and me is that our identity, we are a priesthood. Our identity, who you are, not who you should be, not who you might be, not who you could be. It is who you are if you have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And he calls you and me to take seriously this movement because he has called us ultimately what what happens now as we serve him whenever he comes back we're going to get to the millennial reign I promise you we'll be in 2020 when we get there but what he says did you catch the promise at the end of verse 10 he says this and they will reign upon the earth I can't wait y'all don't seem too excited brother brother can't wait to be reigning with the lord doing what he asked me to do Can you need something? Let's go get it, right? That's why I I can't wait. And so we live our lives that way now. We serve him now. So that way, when we're reigning, it'll be easy. It'll be natural. It'll be be just as, as easy as breathing. That's what he desires. Let me close us out. We ought to worship him because he is deserving. 
Now, we've already seen one song. We're going to see two songs here. Now, I want you to watch the progression. It started out with just a few folks around the throne, but this thing's going to get real big, real wide, real fast. Catch this in verse 11 through 14. It says this, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them, was myriads of myriads. So myriad 10,000. He said, look, we got 10,000s of 10. Y'all see the S on the back of that? He said, we got 10,000s of 10,000s and thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice, right? It's quiet in church. Don't say nothing. No, it was not quiet. They are saying worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, the blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. See, I, I want to close this way this morning. That when you look at this section, the exaltation of the Lamb, you know, when Jesus was here earthly, we hear about him being hungry. We read about him being tired. And we read about him being misunderstood and people arguing with him and saying all kinds of things about him. We read about him standing before Pilate. You remember Pilate? Pilate talking crazy to him. And Jesus was like, look, I'm just telling you, if you're a part of my kingdom, there'd be angels, they'd be fighting for me right now, just so you know. And we read about his poverty and we read about his weakness. But that's not the case today. That's not the case today. The case today is that he is in heaven. He is, he is ruling and reigning powerfully. He has power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and praise is due to him. And of these things, these sevenfold things, can I just tell you when you read these things and what they're saying to him? Power, that's intrinsic to who he is. We don't give him the power. Riches, intrinsic. Wisdom, intrinsic, might, intrinsic. But the next three are where we come in and we, we bestow on him honor. We bestow on him glory. We bestow on him blessing. That is our role. We see that he is deserving. We see it. And then we catch it here. And it says that they gave a praise not just to the lamb, but in the last movement, they gave it to the one who was on the throne, the father, and the lamb, that's the son. And it tells us that all creation worshiped. All creation worshiped. If you're taking notes, I want to close with Romans 8.21. I want to close with Romans 8.21. Could you see, in your life and in my life, there's never been a time where you have not lived under the curse, that the, the effects of the curse. We, we have never... We've never lived outside of that. So whenever you think about this, a sunset, a sunrise, 
you know, when you're riding through mountains, you see snow, you know, that's all beautiful stuff. But can I just tell you, it gets much better. Because everything that we still see, even, even in our own bodies, we still experience, even though Christ has redeemed us, he has laid his life down. Listen, we are still affected by the curse on this side of heaven. We are still affected by it. So everything that you know, right, you can just look at it, lay it down side by side, right? Whenever you get married, there's beauty that comes out of marriage, but there's also hardship that comes out of the marriage. Whenever you have children, there's beauty that comes out of having children, but then there's also hardship that comes out of having children. Even on your own, your job, the job you love, you go to work, you don't even feel like you, you know, it, it should be robbery to get paid to do what you love like this, right? But it still comes with heartache and difficulty and strain and stress. And if everything that you and I know, everything that we've ever experienced, it has all been affected by the curse. And we still see that each and every day. But there's a promise. That the creation itself also will be set free. From its slavery. To corruption. And to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And you see, whenever I'm preaching on Sundays and we have people coming here and they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, what what they don't recognize is that they are slaves to sin in bondage. And what the lamb is trying to do in our text, he said it very clearly, is to purchase you for God. That's what he did when he laid his life down. And can I just tell you that some of you, you, you need to be bought. You you need to be bought. You need to be willing to make the transaction because you're still slaves to this corrupt world. There's some of us here, we've been bought. But yet there's this world that still pulls at us and it tries to get us to be shaped into its mold. And can I just tell you, there are all these philosophies and all these ideas, but none of them will ever satisfy. The only one who will satisfy is the one who is worthy. And he will satisfy for all of eternity because he is the lamb standing. Have you been willing to surrender your life to him? Have you been willing to trust him? Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this morning. And I'm fascinated by the fact that when we read your word, it doesn't say that they sang praises to a great teacher. It doesn't say that they sang praises to a great human being. It doesn't say that they sang praises to a great prophet. It doesn't say that they sang great great praises to some great leader, have all these great leadership principles. Lord, it says they sang to the Lamb, to the Redeemer. And Lord, I'm convinced that in our day, a lot of people want to give you homage as a teacher and they want to, you know, just give you lip service to your book and to what you've done or to what you've said. But Lord, the real test is whether or not we see you as redeemer. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here, there's anyone here, Lord, they have never surrendered their life to you. They've never understood, Lord, that they are a slave to sin incarcerated by Satan to do his bidding that Lord that today they would see that and today they will be set free 
Lord Jesus, it's no secret. You are qualified. It's no secret you are victorious. And it's no secret you are deserving of everything, every praise, every, every honor that we can bestow. So, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here, they've never given their life to you. That, Lord, they would call out and they would say, Lord Jesus, save me. Change my life. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who have surrendered. We've surrendered our life to you. Lord, I pray that we would live like it. We would live like we believe that you have all authority in heaven and on earth. That we would live like it, Lord, and that we would recognize that, Lord, when we pray to you, when we talk to you, when we come to you, Lord, you are aware of what's happening in our lives. You are aware of what's happening on this earth, Lord. And just because it seems like there is silence does not mean that there's not attention being paid. And God, that the prayers that we prayed as your children, Lord, they come to your throne room and those elders, Lord, they are keeping them. And we recognize, Lord, that you care. And that, Lord, we would live like it. Lord, I pray we would be worshipers. That we would understand that, Lord, we are a kingdom of priests. And that was the priest's job. That they were responsible to make sure that worship was happening the way it was supposed to. And God, there's none other worthy. So God, I pray you would remind us of that. And that, Lord, you would use our lives to change so many lives. Lord, as we go into this time of reflection and praise, and Lord, as we sing, as we, we join with the angels in heaven, as, as we join with the, the, the creatures, as we join with them in this time, God, we pray you would be pleased with our worship. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Will you please stand? I hope God spoke to you during the message today. We want to know about it. You can fill out a connection card at wordbaptist.com slash connection card. We want to help you through any spiritual questions you may have while you're on this journey. You see, we believe that the first step is for a person to give their life to Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear that the greatest need that humanity has is to be saved and that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. If you will agree with God, that you need him for the forgiveness of your sins and you will turn to him in repentance and believe in him, uh, you will be saved. The Bible says that you do this by one, believing that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead and that you believe that his payment is sufficient for you, that you will call out to him as Lord and Savior, he will save you. If you're listening to this service and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come and be our guest during the time of worship. We have multiple services. We would love to meet you personally and have you here for worship. You can check us out at wordbaptist.com for service times. If you've missed any sermons, they're all archived there online, so you can go back and watch them. You can connect with us on social media at Word Baptist. If you would like to invest in the ministry and continuing the spread of the gospel, you can give online at wordbaptist.com give. I'm so grateful that you've joined us today, and I hope you've learned something that you can apply to your life, and we hope to see you again next time right here at Word Baptist Church.